Hello and good morning. Welcome to the Steamy. Um, it's been a, another big week in Scottish politics. Um, we here at the Scotsman have hopefully helped you work it through over the weekend um, with Alex Salmon's brand new party and um, the brand new attempts to gain independence through, frankly, gaming the Holyrood system. With me, as always, is uh, our Deputy Political Editor, Gina Davidson. Good morning, Gina. Good morning, Connor. And we've also got a return slightly earlier than expected of uh, uh, Chris Hopkins, the Associate Director of Savannah Commerce. Morning, Chris. Morning, Connor. So... Friday last week I mean it was a huge week in Scottish politics anyway um we obviously recorded the last episode before the results of the Hamilton report before the results of the Salmon inquiry but in short um Nicholas Surgeon survived by the skin of her teeth Gina it's probably it's a huge development of this election it turns it into Sturgeon versus Salmond um to a certain extent what's what's your take on it yeah it absolutely does do that um which, of course, is exactly what Alex Hammond wants. <laughs> He's um, a man who absolutely loves the limelight, so he is back in it. Not to say that he's been out of it over the last three years, given everything that's that's been going on, but this is very much on his terms and, and what he wants to be talking about. So he will be, um, I think, revelling in this, um, to put it mildly. And, uh, and it is possibly Nicola Sturgeon's worst nightmare. I mean, this is the last thing that she will have, have wanted, um, but in a way, I, I, I do think that Alex Salmond was just biding his time, waiting for these, um, after being cleared, you know, uh, in the criminal trial and waiting for these uh, inquiries to finish before before launching this party. I don't think he had really had any intention of staying out of politics after all of this. It's a fascinating thing. We'll, we'll, we'll hear from um, Alex Neil, who's a long time ally of Alex Salmond uh, later on. We obviously, we, we spoke to him on Thursday last week, you know, the day before the announcement of the Alba party, but his his comments on Holyrood are interesting and it, it, it's potentially worth bringing them in now in the sense that he believes it's been stymied or, or the scrutiny of, of, of government has been stymied by, you know, party machines and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, if the Alba party, res, you know, return six or seven MSPs, even as few as that, um, that could have a really big impact on how the Scottish government act. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and you say six or seven and as few as that, but that would be more than either the Liberal Democrats or, or the Greens have at the moment. So um, that would be quite big news if they returned quite as many as that. And yes, I think um, there's there's obviously been a lot of concern about the, the scrutiny that the committee system's been able to apply to the government, not just over the sexual harassment allegations and that inquiry that was ongoing. But just in terms of post-legislative scrutiny, you know, there's there's been none of that done, as far as I'm aware, over the course of this parliament. So, and COVID has been part of that and Brexit has been part of that because the committee system has been taken up with a lot of other kind of legislation. So there definitely needs to be um, some kind of uh, written branch review of, of how the parliament's actually working. And I think that's what Alex Neil was getting at, as well as on the political side, he believes obviously that um, the SNP in particular is just kind of getting too stuffed full of people who are or want to be career politicians and have no, um, you know, uh, backstory to tell say through working in public service or the trade union movement or or, or business or wherever it is and, and he's very concerned about that uh, Chris thank you for joining us again um we expected to I think have you back maybe closer to the election um but I, I think it's worth you know we, you, we we spoke to each other on on Friday after Alex Salmon's announcement um about how the Alba party um are going to um, potentially make inroads. Um, Chris, you called it effectively manipulating the additional member system in Holyrood. Is, is it, presumably, you you would obviously stand by that today. Can you explain what that means? Yeah. So I guess one of the one of the you know going back to the start, if we can, one of the weird um, sort of characteristics of the additional member system that elects M MSPs to Holyrood is that it's designed to be proportional. It's designed not to give a single party a majority. And it's 
it's, you know, it's a testament, really, I think, as we just probably discussed last time I was, I was on, to the SM, SNP's dominance that they get close or have, have previously had a majority in Holyrood. However, you know, if not, if they don't get one, and I think our, our, our most recent polling um, w- with the Scotsman showed that they possibly were going to fall a little bit short of a majority, um, then obviously that brings into question the, um, you know, does Holyrood have a mandate for independence? And therefore, it's important for, um, I guess, for the SNP, if independence is, is, is the ultimate aim rather than just the SNP's dominance, to, to try and get that majority for independence. And although the Scottish Greens are technically pro-independence, I think having, a, having, an, having another party um, that is, uh, you know, is pro-independence, is staunchly, you know, that is almost like Alibaba's single issue, really, um, you know, should in theory help the SNP. And, and, and how ultimately, ultimately it will work is that the SNP don't gain many list seats, despite the fact that they get an overwhelming number of votes um, in, in, in that secondary list vote because they win so many and they're so dominant in the constituency. And therefore, when it comes to balancing the parliament out proportionally, they don't need any, any further list seats because they are so dominant when it comes to, when it comes to the overall vote share. So having that, and, and therefore all of those list seats tend to go to pro-union parties, such as the Conservatives, Labour, Liberal Democrats don't take too many, but the Greens will take a handful. Um, so, so therefore, it's a, it, it's a weird... Um, it's a weird kind of anomaly whereby by taking votes away from the SNP, in theory, uh, in, in the list, they will take seats away from the Conservatives and Labour. And therefore, you could end up with, um, as Alex Hammond uh, has, uh, has announced, looking for that supermajority, that majority of you know, as many SNP um, constituency MSPs as possible, and then topping them up with more pro-independence MSPs from the Alaba party than they would ordinarily get if it was just the SNP standing there. Can I ask, Chris, um, what is the impact on the SNP in areas, do you think, like the south of Scotland, where they do return list MSPs? I mean, is that where Alba could actually eat into their vote share and, and reduce the number of SNP MSPs that will, will return to Holyrood? Possibly, possibly. And I think it would be, you know, if um, this is, I guess, where it gets a little bit complicated and a little bit, you know, d- delving into the party politics of it. But, you know, if it wouldn't be the worst idea for Alban not to stand in the south of Scotland and possibly in, in, in the Highlands and Islands, where I believe um, you know, the SNP did get one list MSP in, in 2016, just because the Liberal Democrats are quite strong in the constituency vote, and therefore they don't end up topping up quite in the same way when it comes to the list there. So so it wouldn't be a ridiculous idea for the for, 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 for Alabama not to stand in, in, in South Scotland, um, just because, you know, as, as, as you say, Gina, the Conservatives do quite well in the constituency vote, therefore the SNP don't do as well, therefore proportionally when they end up with um, with, with a with a, you know a fair chunk of the list vote, and they end up topping up in the south of Scotland um, with list M- MSPs. Um, I mean that. I think I think you know we'll probably come on to this, but but this is where things get a little bit complicated. And yeah, you know, at the moment, Alex Salmond's um, parliamentary tactics, or t- as as uh, as as I said, you know, ways of kind of trying to game the electoral system make complete sense. And if he wants to game it properly probably shouldn't stand in the south of scotland however if he ends up having support in the south of scotland then not appearing on the ballot looks doesn't look great and i think we touched on this last time i was on in the sense that you know it doesn't actually make it never never really made loads and loads of sense for the smp to be advocating a both votes smp um uh, you know slogan from the electoral maths point of view but it also looks a bit odd if you are the, the you know the primary major political party in Scotland not to be advocating for your supporters to vote for you all the time. And you know, although um, I, you know I, I stand by this, I think that Scottish people understand their electoral system that is more complicated far better than English people understand first past the post when it comes to electing uh, MPs to Westminster. Um, you know, just adding a little a further layer of complication probably doesn't help things. And uh, and and therefore I think you know. From, from well, from a maths point of view, 
both votes, S&P doesn't make huge amounts of sense. I think from a branding and messaging point of view, it makes perfect sense. And and, and I guess that's going to be the, possibly something that Alaba has to, has to contend with. You know, you can't necessarily say, oh, well, vote for us with your second list seat, but not with your second list vote, but but not here and not here. So, so yeah, I think it could get a little bit confusing for, for supporters of, of, of this new, of Alex Hammond's new party, um, unless they stand everywhere. It's a, it's a fascinating electoral game being played, isn't it, really, by by Alex Salmond. Um, I mean, if you look at historically, you know, what what parties have managed to get on the list, um, the Scottish Greens, I think, average about 7 or 8% um, on, on the list vote. Certainly they did in 2016. At the minute on the polling, they're polling between 8 and 11%. Um, you know, and, and there's there's a relatively big jump up to the bigger unionist parties such as the the Conservatives and, and and Labour. And obviously, as you as you say, much of this is about Alex Salmond going to the million odd SNP regional list voters and going, you know, all of you, or at least a very significant minority of you, need to shift your vote over to us. And um, the, the issue you've got there, presumably, Chris, is that. Alba have to reach a certain threshold in order to, you know, a beat the smaller parties that that are already gaining this seat, and and b not just come sixth. If you see what I mean, um, where where do you see that threshold being? Do you think that they can get ahead, or uh, you know, do you think that they can get enough of the share of the vote? where they're not behind the Lib Dems and the Greens in order to gain seats? Because even if they get, say, 10,000 votes, if the Greens get 11,000, the Lib Dems get 12,000, and you know the Tories and Labour get their normal amount, they're not going to get any list seats. No, that's very, that's very true. Um, but we have seen in previous elections in, in Scotland, particularly on the, on the list, that you know, parties do get MSPs on the list with five, six, seven percent of the vote. So that's really the threshold that I think um, Alaba needs to be aiming for. Now, if the SNP are taking 40% of the list vote in, in a region, then they don't really need to take many of their voters away. And I think that you know, the second point there is that I, I wouldn't want to underestimate Scottish Green support, but it wouldn't shock me if a lot of Scottish Green support is coming from those SNP voters that understand the electoral system and aren't perhaps completely wedded to SNP to the SNP but are wedded to independence and therefore know that to achieve a pro-independence majority in Holyrood they need to they, you know, it's tactically better to give their second vote to the Greens now if they don't find Alex Hammond um, you know uh, awful and they're happy to vote for him then th- then it would now I mean it makes as much sense to vote for the Scottish Greens as it does for for, 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 for Salmon's new party so you know there is um, while 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 he will ultimately be, you know, likely to take the majority of his voters from from a large pool of SNP uh, voters in, in in terms of the list seat, it wouldn't shock me at all if 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 in our next voting intention for the list, presuming we will we will include Alaba, um, the green the green vote share will also go to go down in, in the list. And you know, if it is on ten, I think our first poll back in December we had them on twelve percent in the in, in the list, and that would have had them on for for you know, for more. For more MSPs um, coming from from that list proportion, and uh, and yeah, I think uh, if if if, if Alaba end up taking them down back to six seven percent, then 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 yeah, there's no reason why Alaba couldn't be taking taking a fair few uh, fair few MSPs, and and uh, you know they are only going to need four or five to end up with this super majority for independence. I mean, super might be a, a slight exaggeration, but 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 you know, if the SNP with constituency votes are only one or two seats short, it's not going to take much to tip the balance for, for a pro-independence majority in Holyrood. And what do you make, Chris, of this call by Douglas Ross now um, for the, the unionist parties, as, as he calls them, you know, Labour, Lib Dems and themselves to... Um, work together to make sure that this doesn't happen. I mean, are they basically going to have to, as um, as Connor said earlier, manipulate the system, you know, to to stymie what the the, the pro independence parties are trying to do? Um, yeah, I mean, put simply, yes, it would make 
sense for them to think about how to do that. Um, you know, it comes back to, to what we were discussing earlier in terms of you know party branding and does it look good for? It definitely probably doesn't look good for Labour in Scotland to be you know in some sort of pre-election pact with the Conservative Party. Um, it would. I'm, I'm sure as the minor party in all this, it would all but wipe the Liberal Democrats out apart from where they're strong in constituencies. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, you know, it would, it's one of the, it's that classic conundrum. It makes sense with the electoral arithmetic, but does it make sense for, for each party to be seen to be doing such a thing? On, on that, I mean, I have a theory that Scottish Labour might actually be the ones to gain the most from um, Alba Party um, and, and their approach because shows pretty clearly that Scottish Labour's problem has been leeching the soft indie vote to the SNP and also, to a lesser extent, leeching the hardline unionist vote to the to the Scottish Conservatives. Now, with ALBA, you've got a party, you know, led by someone who is deeply unpalatable for the um, wider electric. I mean, Alex Hammond's approval ratings are dreadful um, across the country. So do you, do you think, because I, I, I think you'll have a lot of Labour voters who might have voted SNP now looking at it and going, well, if, if my vote for the SNP potentially puts Alex Salmond in a position of kingmaker, I don't think I'm going to risk it. Do you, do you think that Labour voters will be looking at it in that way? It could happen. Uh, they have to be thinking very tactically, um, which you know, uh, without patronising the electorate, which, you know, I'm reluctant to do uh, as a pollster, but you know, research shows that, 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 that the vast majority of voters and probably not the listeners to the steamy, but the vast majority of voters don't understand the electoral system quite in, in, in quite such a nuanced way. Um, I think it, it is interesting to see, you know, your, your theory probably isn't, isn't, isn't hugely incorrect, Connor. I guess the, the challenge will be, you know, will Labour then take votes away from the SNP in, in, constitu- in the constituency vote, which isn't going to have a huge amount of, of impact. And yes, okay, it could then end up shoring, it could end up increasing their list vote a little bit, shoring up some of their MSPs. But I can't, I, I think I'd be struggling to see them making huge gains because as I say, just, you know, the, 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 the weirdness of, of the electoral system and what ultimately Alex Hammond is trying to do with his new party is to take a few votes from the SNP, but not take any of their seats away. And those seats will end up coming naturally from the Conservatives and Labour just by sheer virtue of the fact that they have the most ordinarily to gain from, 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 from the regional list. There's a lot of debate about the actual impact on the Greens. Now, I probably subscribe to the view that the Venn diagram of voters, you know, who, of, of ALBA voters and Green voters, you know, the, the crossover is probably quite small. Um, there'll be the handful of, of voters who are, as you say, kind of single-mindedly pro-independence, but the Green Party is pretty a pretty progressive left, left-wing party. It holds di- directly opposing views on issues such as, you know, the gender recognition reform and issues like that. Do, do, you, actually, do you think that the risk, the risk to the Greens is potentially overstated? Because maybe their their vote is 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 stronger um, and and less likely to leach to Alba than maybe core SNP vote. Yeah, possibly, possibly. I think um, yeah, as we say, the the percentage that the Greens got on the list back in twenty sixteen is it is lower than what we're polling at the moment. Um, you know, sometimes that that you know, these minor parties and it is classic classic thing to happen with the greens particularly in westminster polling you know they might poll at four or five percent throughout a parliament and then as soon as it comes to um you know squeaky bum time when 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 the election is 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 you know on the horizon all of a sudden that goes back down to two three percent um so you know that could happen we could just be showing a slightly higher green figure at the moment because we are a bit further out from from polling day um but i don't think it's I don't think it's it's ridiculous to suggest that without the without Alex Salmond's new party, um, they could have they could have hit ten percent on the on the list. And you know, tactically, they know that they're not going to gain very much from the constituency, so they basically only stand in the, you know on the list as well. Um, and 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 yeah, it could be a little bit overstated. I think that. Um, I think it's easy for us to uh, be you know be on Twitter all day and think that everyone that you know a lot of people that might vote for the Greens understand that you know for first vote SNP, second vote Green uh, is a good way to, um, you know, is a good way to secure a pro-independence majority in Holyrood. 
um, you know, if that, but but then that is also the basis upon which Oliver are standing. Um, they are hoping to 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 achieve that, and and but by but by being a kind of purely pro independent party rather than um, having a slightly more kind of like left wing agenda, obviously a green agenda, um, and 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 and, you know, and some of the other issues that, that you just spoke about. So so it, it might not have the uh, the the impacts that that perhaps. Um, perhaps is being is being mooted. I think that I would I would be worried if I were the Greens, um, but it's you know they're going to have to spend the next few weeks trying to carve out a niche for themselves and and saying that you know trying to convince their existing supporter base, which is larger than it was in 2016, um, that you know a vote for them is 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 ultimately doing the same thing as it would for uh, as it would for Alaba, but you also get all of these other great things as well. You know and and hopefully that will hopefully for them at least that will that will sort of appeal to their supporter base um so they won't won't leak as many votes to, to alex salmon yeah I, I, what i think will be really interesting in the wash-up of all this um when we when the votes are in is how um how how big a deal salmon's news new parties appeal to female voters is, is going to be because it, it you know they're, they're coming out with a paper i think which is all tapping into that whole row around the gender uh, recognition reforms. And so many uh, disgruntled SNP women who, uh, you know, started up that SNP Women's Pledge and and, and those kind of organisations. Some of them have left already to join ALBA. Um, and how and whether there's enough of them to make any kind of difference, uh, because those, those are not women that would have voted Green based on that issue despite the independence thing. And you see that again, you know, you can get lost in, in Twitter and social media conversations, but you see those conversations going on about a lot of formerly SNP supporting women saying, who do we vote for? Who do we vote for? Because we don't agree with this policy. And now here comes Alba. But at the same time, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of those women are saying, well, they don't like Alex Hammond. You know, they don't like what's happened there. So is that any better really? And do they just, you know, suck that up and, and vote because it's independence you know I, I, that's what I always find most interesting about the whole argument around independence is that it transcends everything else and there, there's that whole fished for indie hashtag that that does the rounds and I wonder if um while they weren't prepared to fished for indie while they were in the SNP if they'll do it and vote Alba you know I think all of that is going to be absolutely fascinating to see um uh, come the actual election and come your polling Chris yeah absolutely yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting to see what the tipping point is, and I think again, it's easy for um, you know, for, 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 for myself at least just to think that independence is 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 the only driver sometimes to, to how someone votes. Um, you know, it's although it is a binary issue, um, there does seem to be way more at play in Scottish politics, and actually, it's 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 you know quite reductionist just to think that it only comes down to a single issue. It may do for many people, but you know. Those that those that go to the ballot box on the day undecided, I'm sure it comes down to a to, to a lot more to a lot more than that. And and as you say, Gina, you know, there are going to be some um, disgruntled women in the SNP who will feel politically homeless because the SNP don't re- represent them on something that's very important to them. But whether Alex Salmond's party does and all of his controversies um, remains to be seen. And, and as you say, if 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 also they don't find the Greens that palatable, then then where do they where do they you know where do they end up? I mean. Research would suggest that they'll 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 sort of stick with their status quo, which will be the SNP. Better the devil, you know. Sometimes, but um, but there's, there's sure to be a proportion that might end up um, that might end up switching. I mean, I can't guarantee that we're going to have um, a, you know, a large enough subsample size of voters to be able to draw any inferences in our next polling. But I guess we just don't know at this stage, so we'll wait and see. But um, but yeah, that you know, that gender split. Of, of Alaba supporters could be really interesting, and and if there is something, I'm sure um, Connor will be the first to pick it up. Pick it out. Well, we're we're going to have uh, our next poll. I think Chris, you guys are going into the field this weekend. I think for um, a Thursday release next week. I mean, it'll be a, a fascinating one to read. I think it'll be one of the first that will have field work after all of the candidates and all of the potential defections. Um, for those who want to stand as an MSP, at least, um, will be announced. So, we, we're we're at a fascinating point in the in the uh, election campaign. It's only about four days old, 
and already it feels like it's been going on for about five weeks five weeks <laughs> um, uh, but thank thank you so much as always chris um for, for joining us um and uh we look forward to seeing what you guys find out about the size of alba's support um this weekend absolutely thank you very much and as Connor said at the top of the show, we spoke to Alex Neal, a veteran SNP MSP, uh, last week on Thursday, just before the Alba party uh, had its um, had its launch. So, you know, he is somebody, as listeners to the Steamy will know, has never been shy of voicing his opinion, even when it's been at odds with that of his party. So, uh, let's hear now from Alex Neal. Welcome to the CME, Alex Neal, MSP for Airdrie and Shots, and you'll still be in that position at least until May the 5th, is that correct? That's right, we get six extra weeks wages this time. <laughs> it's normally, normally at the end of a parliamentary session, you cease to be an MSP the day the parliament finishes up, which was yesterday, uh, but because of coronavirus and the possibility to recall the parliament in an emergency, it was decided that we needed to all remain MSPs until the day before the election. Okay, but you've been an MSP since the very start of the Scottish Parliament uh, on the regional list initially before you became a constituency MSP. Um, can you tell us a bit about what you remember about that first election campaign? Well, the first election, every election campaign is different, uh, no matter what organisation it's for. But obviously, this was the first ever democratically elected Scottish Parliament. So uh, there never had been uh, an election like it before. Uh, although we had a Scottish Parliament until 1707, it was certainly not a democratic one. Uh, so this was the first democratic uh, Scottish Parliament. And of course, the SNP went into that campaign very enthusiastic, very positive and very optimistic about our chances. Uh, it was a tough old campaign because Donald Dewar uh, and Alex Salmon were both clever operators uh, and Labour ran a very, very strong anti-independence campaign. And of course, the SNP in, in that particular campaign wasn't saying vote for us and you know we'll negotiate independence. We were saying vote for us and we will promote and protect Scotland. Uh, and we will also then look at taking forward the independence question. But Labour ran it as though we were asking for a mandate for independence in that campaign, which we clearly were not. So it was a very, very brutal campaign. And to be honest, we didn't um, do as well as we expected. We did very well getting 35 seats in the first ever democratically elected Scottish Parliament. And where we were coming from in terms of three Westminster seats was good progress for the SNP. But Labour got 56 seats and, of course, formed a coalition with the Liberal Democrats. So we were in opposition for the first two um, parliaments, the one elected in uh, 1999 and the one elected subsequently in 2003. And then, obviously, we won government in 2007. Uh, so it was... Um, Interesting times, shall we say. <laughs> when is it not? I mean, what, what was the difference, do you think, um, by 2007, which saw you, you know, become the, well, a minority government, but become the main party uh, within Holyrood? What had changed well, by think, then? I think two or three things had changed. First of all, Alex Salmon gave up the leadership in 2000 and John Swinney became the leader. Um, and uh, obviously, Labour went through some travails. Donald Dewar died. Then Henry McLeish replaced Donald Dewar. And a year later, Jack McConnell replaced uh, Henry McLeish. Uh, and therefore, there was a lot of change in the first few years of the parliament. And almost immediately the parliament was elected, it started to get very, very bad coverage from the media. Uh, so we didn't go off to a brilliant start. We didn't help the situation because uh, certain people who were running the parliament took it upon themselves, for example, to issue every parliamentarian with a medal. And people felt, well, why are they get a medal? They haven't done anything yet, stuff like that. So in the first few years, Years, both for the Labour Party and the SNP were difficult years. But obviously John stood down from the leadership in 2004 after the European elections that year and Alex Salmond became leader again. 
Now, this was a very different Alex Salmon from the one who had left the leadership four years before, because he was very determined and very single-minded about taking the SNP from opposition to being the party of government. And so everything was geared to that. And I think because by then we had eight years experience of a big parliamentary group of by then having, by the time we got to 2007, that was the third election to the Scottish Parliament. So it was much more geared towards winning the election. And there was a fundamental change in the party's strategy to clarify a position of independence. And that was that what we sought was the power to hold a referendum on independence, not a mandate as such to negotiate independence. And I think that for a lot of people who were not pro-independence allowed them to vote SNP in the election, although their view was if there was going to be a referendum, they probably would not have voted for independence at that time. Okay. That's really that's really interesting, Alex. I'm just curious, do you think that is why the SNP still has popular support today? Because that's still realistically the 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 kind of strategy electorally. Well, I was listening to John Curtis last night. One of the points he made was that 87% of the people who say and tell the pollsters are in favour of independence are voting for the SNP um, in terms of what they tell the pollsters. Uh, and I'm not surprised at that because uh, everything changed after 2014. Independence is now the, divide, the, the dividing line in Scottish politics, uh, much more than the left-right divide at the moment, probably. Uh, and therefore, uh, the SNP is seen as the, the independence bus. Uh, that bus is the main way to achieve independence. That, there's a bigger and wider independence movement that has a big role to play and did play a very big role in 2014. But in, in electoral terms, people see the SNP as the vehicle. They might totally disagree with a lot of the SNP's policies. They might not be very happy with uh, the leadership of the SNP. Uh, they might think, well, once we get independence, there's no way I'm voting SNP, I'm going to go back to being... Labour or Liberal or whatever, uh, but if they see independence as their top priority, it automatically almost follows that they're going to support the SNP as the bus that can deliver independence and get us to that destination. But can the SNP really get people to that destination if that's what they wish, Alex? Because, I mean, you know, ultimately the power to decide whether or not there will be even a referendum lies at Westminster. Well, there are two things. Uh, first of all, uh, we've got to persuade a majority of people, a substantial majority of people, uh, of the case for independence. And I think the first thing we need to do is update uh, many aspects of what we said in 2014 because circumstances have changed. Uh, for example, in the next referendum, we need a currency policy that's much more robust than the last one, uh, which fell by the wayside. Uh, secondly, we need to redefine our relationship with Europe, I think in terms of membership of the European Free Trade Association for an independent Scotland, rather than going back into the European Union, because if you go back into the European Union, that's a customs union, and that does mean border controls at Gretna. Uh, whereas if you just go back into EFTA, that's not necessarily the case. So there's a number of policy areas where I think the SNP to win a referendum a campaign needs to sharpen up, modernise, update uh, the preparations for independence and explain uh, how we're going to have a different currency, which is a party policy, when that would happen, what the, the benefits and the disadvantages of that, and so on and so forth, uh, as well as another a range of other issues that tripped us up in 2014. Uh, so that's the first thing. But the second thing is, I, I think the party shouldn't put all its eggs in the referendum basket, because very clearly Boris Johnson has said, there's no way is he going to have a referendum. 
So if the SNP gets 66 seats, which is an overall majority of two, he's going to say, well, that's not enough. That's not a mandate for independence. It's a mandate for government, but not a mandate for independence. I don't agree with him, by the way, but this is what he's going to say. Uh, therefore, I think we need a contingency plan at the very least, and, and we need to put it to the people in this election, saying if Boris Johnson refuses to accept the democratic will of the Scottish people, then we won't take no for an answer, uh, because uh, this is a democracy, and if the people want independence, they've got to get independence. Even Margaret Thatcher said that. So I think the, the party needs to spell out a contingency plan for what it would do in the event of Boris Johnson refusing a referendum, even if the SNP gets an overall majority. Can I ask, Alex, do you think that the, the current leadership, I mean, much of the discussion internally with the SNP is on, you know, the plan B and maybe the perceived lack of it. Do you think the current leadership is doing enough in that regard um, ahead of this election and, you know, maybe for, for plans after it? No, no, I don't think so. I, you know, I, I think, um, the, I think, in in a situation like this, where right at the core of our campaign is the demand for Indiref two, uh, and the prime minister has said that there's no way he's going to grant it. Now, I don't think that's in the long term a sustainable position. But I think if we say get an overall majority of two, and let's say, you know, a big issue in this election is going to be turnout just because of the way in which the election's been conducted under pandemic conditions, um, then Boris Johnson's going to use any excuse he can find to justify not granting a referendum, even if the SNP gets an overall majority. So there's two things I think got to happen. First of all, we've got to build alliances across the independence movement so that we not only get an overall majority, but the pro-independence forces, not necessarily, SNP can't do this alone, but the pro-independence forces have got to try to get a, a, not just an overall majority, but a super majority in the Scottish Parliament for independence, so that it would be very, very, very difficult, well nigh impossible, for Boris Johnson to refuse a referendum uh, under those circumstances. And I think the, the party needs to reach out to other people to do that. And secondly, we've got to make it absolutely clear that if the people vote for a referendum by a clear majority, then we ain't taking no for an answer and we will employ other means to achieve the end. Uh, because if Boris Johnson isn't prepared to accept a democratic decision, you cannot lie down to that. That's a denial of democracy. Uh, and therefore, I think it's perfectly legitimate for us to try other things. And I'm not, I'm not talking about stuff that's wild here, uh, but look at other strategies in that event uh, to take forward uh, independence. Would you say then, Alex, that the, the SNP's campaign of both votes SNP for this election is the wrong one then? And that they should be, I mean, obviously they're not going to come out and say you should vote for another party, but should there be some kind of understanding that maybe on the list that these other smaller, uh, newer independence parties are worth backing? Should the party be saying something along those lines? Well, the, par the, the party has a dilemma because we're doing so well in the polls. At the moment, we have 59, and from the last election, we had 59 first-past-the-post seats and four list seats, one in the Highlands and three in the south of Scotland. Now, if the polls are right, and instead of 59 first-past-the-post seats, we win 65 first-past-the-post seats, then our chances of winning list seats are almost, you know, they almost disappear, uh, as the polls show. I mean, I think in the latest poll uh, that I saw giving the SNP 65 seats, only one of those seats would have been on a list. <clears throat> so what we are doing is um, we, we're actually letting the unionists off the hook on the list. Um, so I think what the party should be doing is saying to people, vote SNP in the constituency seat. But if you're in an area where it's difficult for the SNP to win list seats, then vo vote and, and you're worried about you know, wasting your vote and effectively allowing in more unionists than should be the case, then think about, I mean, I think we should be big enough to say, think about voting for another pro-independence party. 
you know, there's got a chance of winning less seats. Because at the end of the day, what's important is in the new parliament, not only that there's an SNP over oil majority, ideally, but there's a kind of super majority for independence. Uh, because if you get a super majority for independence, it makes life very difficult for a prime minister refusing to accept the will of the Scottish people in a democratic election. You've obviously been an MSP for the entirety of Scottish parliamentary, the Scottish Parliament's life. Do you think that the quality of debate has suffered in recent years due to this? Do you think that do you think the actual debates that you are having in Parliament and and with other politicians on policy isn't as good as it was? Well, it's not as good as it was, but it's for a whole host of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is the party hierarchies have got too much control. You don't get to be a candidate for any of the major parties unless you're a party hack. And if you look at the debates in the parliament, in every case, with every one of the major parties, too many people get a briefing from the party central unit and basically stand up and make a speech which effectively is reading out the briefing or part of the briefing provided by the party unit. There's not enough originality, not enough individual thought. I, I fear that if you step out of line, you'll get punished, because that happened to me. I voted not to suppress the legal evidence in the Alex Salmon case, as a result of which I got an email from the Minister for Parliamentary Business uh, telling me he didn't think I should get a member's debate on a prison matter as a result of that. That's absurd. The whole point of members' debates was that members independent of the party could raise matters that the party either didn't want to or for other reasons would not do so. Now, that's a very good example of where the parliament is getting strangled by party whips, uh, and I think the list system is partly to blame for that. I think we, I would change to an STV system like local government. I think that would um, reduce the, the over control, excessive control all the parties have. I mean, look at the Tories. Uh, I mean, they, they sacked their deputy leader at the time um, they got rid of Jackson Carlow uh, without a buy-your-leave, no democracy in that whatsoever. And similarly, the Labour Party and even the Liberals uh, are quite illiberal at times, I think, in terms of how the party have parties have too much of a grip. Now, there has to be a certain level of discipline, collective decision making and all the rest of it. But the balance is, is, is not right. And we need fundamental reform, as shown up by the recent inquiry on harassment. There are fundamental flaws now in the way the parliament works, in the powers of the parliament and in the parliament's ability to scrutinise and control the executive government function. Uh, and all of that needs to be changed. And one other thing, uh, there are too many people who I think come straight into parliament after uh, having a fairly narrow career. Uh, and, you know, uh, I, I've employed people like this myself uh, who've come straight from university into a research or parliamentary assistant function, then they become MSPs, then they become ministers. Um, I, I think we need more people in the parliament who've got more life experience. Uh, if you take, for example, uh, the parliaments of old, um, when you trade unionists, when you had people who had been in business and very often come in as Tory MPs after having made their money, uh, and people who had been in academia and then come into the parliament. We don't have enough of a balance. There are far, far too many career politicians um, who have done nothing else but practice party politics. And I think that's a bad thing, not just in the Holyrood parliament, but it's a bad thing in Westminster as well, because it's got the same problem. And indeed in other democracies where yeah, that has become too much of the norm. I think we need to bring in a much bigger, wider scope of people with who've been round the block before they come into party politics. But again, the way the parties are organised, uh, I think, uh, is detrimental to, to doing that. Yeah, I think you're right there, Alex, actually. And I, and, and I wonder, I mean, obviously, you're not, you're standing down now, you're not standing for re-election, but are there things, um, and you were regarded um, by some within your party as a bit of a thorn in their side at times because you're so. yeah, so. definitely not a party hack. But um, I wonder, 
you know, if there are things that you wish that you'd been able to change while you were in there, because now obviously you're having to leave it to others and maybe they won't happen now. Uh, well, you know, I, I was involved in changing quite a number of things, in the, particularly in the earlier years. But I think the problem now is that Holyrood is actually behind Westminster in terms of the internal democracy of the, par of the parliament. Let me give you an example of the committee system. I mean, we're in a ridiculous position in Holyrood where the convener of committees is effectively de facto appointed by the leader of the party. So if the Tory party is entitled to a convenership, it's the leader of the Tory group who decides who the convener of that committee is. And similarly, you know, the harassment committee chaired by Linda Fabiani, you know, Linda did a fine job, but she was appointed effectively by Nicola Sturgeon, whose government was the subject of the investigation. So that's an absurd situation for a parliament to be in. Uh, and of course, we've never implemented the recommendation of the McCormick Committee, uh, reported two years ago, uh, saying that uh, conveners of committees should be elected in the same way they're elected at Westminster. And that is one way of improving the independence, not just of the convener, but actually of the committee itself. Uh, so I'm very much in favour of that reform and many other reforms to strengthen the committee system uh, and to make sure that the parliament and backbenchers are empowered to hold the government to account, whoever the government is. The job of the parliament is to hold it to account. And I think we're failing to do that. And uh, one of the reasons is the internal democracy of the parliament is way behind where it needs to be in the 21st century. And, and even the phrase thorn in the flesh, you know, the whole point is, I mean, that, that tells you the mentality of the people who say that. They want a quiet life. They want nobody to criticise. They, you know, that tell, somebody who's called someone else a thorn in the flesh, it really uh, gives away their own inadequacy in terms of their respect for democracy, in my view. Uh, we don't, we, people don't want a parliament made up of stooges. They want a parliament that will speak up for the people and people who will speak out for fundamental principles. Uh, and we're in danger of ending up just with a parliament of party hacks if we don't arrest this over-control and manipulation by the all the political main political parties. Can I ask, um, you, obviously you, you mentioned there the, the government, um, the committee on investigating the government's handling of the harassment complaints against Alex Salmond. Um, Nicola Sturgeon survived a vote of no confidence. She was never going to lose that vote of no confidence, I don't think. But do you think it's right that nobody has taken any responsibility for what's happened there and no, no heads have rolled, so to speak? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I, I think if I'd been Nicola, uh, I, there are certain people I would have sacked long before now. And I think one of the reasons why uh, the thing became such a problem for Nicola was because she was protecting people who were, in my view, who in my view should not have been protected. I mean, top of that list was the permanent secretary. I mean, a senior cabinet minister told me the day of the judicial review collapsed that, quote, the permanent secretary has made a complete burrach of the whole thing. Well, if she's made a complete burrick of it, why is she still in position? In fact, why has she had a contract extended to next year? And I'm, I'm not the only one saying that. Privately, a lot of SNP MSPs agree with me and did agree with me when I said at the time that she should be sacked. Uh, and clearly the committee agrees with that. And if you read the James Hamilton report, everybody in their granny has, who's looked at this, uh, one not, not the only one, but one of the people who should have been sacked is the permanent secretary, in my view. So why but do you, you think Nicola Sturgeon's protecting her? I, well, I think Nicola's maybe, sometimes, you know, loyalty can go too far. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not one of these people who willy-nilly sack people. You know, I try to hear their side of the story, give them the benefit of the doubt, uh, and so on and so forth. But I think it's so overwhelmingly obvious that the permanent secretary uh, acted uh, in, in completely uh, the wrong way throughout uh, the judicial review. And that view is backed up by uh, everyone who's looked at it. 
Uh, I don't think, um, quite frankly, that anyone uh, in that position, I mean, Nicola has sacked cabinet ministers for less. So the permanent secretary, in my view, should have been sacked ages ago, particularly after, immediately after the failure of the judicial review, because it was very obvious, as Nicola herself has said, is that the, that was completely incompetently handled, cost the taxpayer well over half a million pounds, probably nearer a million pounds if you add in all the bits and pieces. Uh, and in my view, if that had been a janitor in St Andrew's house, they would have been sacked instantly for such incompetence. So, you know, what applies to the janitor should also apply in principle to the permanent secretary. Yeah. You, me you mentioned as well, Alex, that the permanent secretary isn't the only one that you think should have lost their job. Who else do you think well, should I'm, go? Oh, no, I'm not going to go through a list of people because uh, I, don't, I don't think that would be appropriate, but there are two or three other people who, in my view, uh, should no longer be in their position, both in the government and in the SNP headquarters. And do you think, I mean, it's interesting, you know, you talk about the... the, the it should apply to janitor, it should apply to permanent secretary. I mean, we've had a first minister in the past resign over a, a much smaller um, issue, I guess, in Henry McLeish. We've had Wendy Alexander resign. We've had David McClechey, you know, re resigned as well. I mean, why is it that Nicola Sturgeon shouldn't resign over this affair? Well, I, I think the, 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 the basic reason is the parliament uh, has voted on this issue and the parliament's decision there was only one party voted for the motion of no conference uh, i mean I, I think the tories have totally mishandled this to put down a motion of no conference in anybody the night before they're due to give evidence on the really subject matter that's the subject of the vote of no conference before they've heard her side of the story they put down a vote of no confidence. I mean, that's a level of political incompetence that's beyond belief. Uh, and at that time, they also had a motion of no confidence against John Swinney. Now, just looking at it from a sensible point of view, at that time, the Greens were probably going to support the motion of no confidence against John Swinney. So the Tories, uh, you know, you, you could not write the script about how stupid Douglas Ross has been. And my understanding is that he took these decisions to put down these motions of no confidence without even consulting the main players in his own parliamentary group. If that's the quality of leadership from Douglas Ross, he's not going to pose a threat to the SNP or to anyone else for that matter. And I suspect he'll have a very short life as leader of the Scottish Tories. Can I ask you um, about Alex Salmond as well, seeing as we're on, on this subject? I mean, you and he were, were friends. I don't know if you still are. Um, yeah. And, you know, all of this, or there's certainly a lot of suggestion, again, if you look on social media, that all of this was just to prevent Alex Salmond from coming back into a public life or to hold any kind of role in the Scottish Parliament. Um, what I don't know when the last time you spoke to him was, but, I mean... Do you think he ever had any idea of doing that? I mean, do you think he's been mistreated in any way um, throughout all of this? What's, what's your take on, on that? Well, first of all, um, I, I don't know the motivation of the people who've done what they've done in terms of the judicial review or pursuing matters in the criminal courts and so on. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not party to that, and I would only be speculating, and I don't have enough information to be able to even speculate as to motivation. That's the first thing. It certainly looks as though at points there was a coordinated attempt to undermine Alex Salmond. Um, there's no doubt about that uh, in, by various individuals. Whether that amounts to a planned conspiracy, I'm not, uh, you know, I don't know. And there's no, there's no, nobody's produced any evidence to say that the First Minister was involved in a conspiracy. The charge against the First Minister related to the ministerial code and allegedly misleading Parliament. So uh, if there was a conspiracy, um, then it's not clear at the moment. I mean, my, my view, Gina, and all of this is, and I think I've been proved correct in this, the day Alex Salmond was acquitted last year, of all 14 charges, one was dropped, the other three was proved not guilty on. Um, the day that happened, I called for an independent judicial review to look into the whole affair, 
all aspects of it, why the women weren't treated properly um, in in terms of the process, why Alex Salmond wasn't treated properly, according, you know, the judicial review said that the process was tainted against him and prejudiced against him, which was not right either, obviously. Um, all of these things uh, should have been done by an independent judicial inquiry with the power to compel people to give evidence and the power to get whatever paperwork and documentation it required. To have politicians scrutinising other politicians in this, it's quite clear this was not the best way to do this. Uh, it just isn't the right way to go about something that has a semi-judicial uh, aspect to it. And I think the uh, First Minister should have set up an independent judge-led inquiry to do the whole thing and clear the air. Uh, and I think by now we would have all been much clearer on what happened, what didn't happen. And there wouldn't have been, I mean, there's a sort of still a, a smell around the place uh, in terms of, um, in the statement yesterday, Alec made it clear there's other stuff, you know, that could have come out that so far anyway hasn't come out. Uh, and so I don't think anybody has been very le left on any side of this, I don't think anyone has been left particularly satisfied with the outcome, uh, one way or the other. Whereas if it had been a proper independent judicial inquiry into all aspects of this, I think that would have been the right way to deal with it. And I think we would all have ended up much clearer on what happened, why it happened, who was involved, uh, why did it go wrong, and what needs to be done to make sure this can never happen again. Uh, you, you were a, a part of Alex Salmon's government um, when he was First Minister. Um, obviously, there have been accusations about his behaviour, just in general terms, I suppose, around bullying and and um, and just being unpleasant towards people. I mean, I, is that something that you were ever witness to yourself? No, I mean, I, Alec, Alec was, as Nicola has said, Alec was a tough boss. He wanted things done and done properly and done speedily uh, because, you know, he wanted Scotland to move forward. And there were times like the rest of us and, and previous First Ministers also, uh, stories of them, you know, one previous First Minister apparently when he got angry, kicked the, the, the paper basket across the office and stuff like this. <laughs> so I'm told, I don't know if that is true. I, Clearly, in any job at that level, there are frustrations, and from time to time, the frustration might boil might, might boil over. And Alex Salmon was no exception to that. What I'm very, very clear on, and, and Nicola has said the same, at no time, and you know, I, I've known Alec now for nearly 40 years, um, but like Nicola, at no time did I see any or hear of any harassment type, sexual type, misbehaving and I was gobsmacked when he was accused of that and uh, you know he said at the time that you know he was no angel but he was no criminal and I think that sums up the situation. Yeah I think um, for me the the committee's report that came out last week um, the, the women's evidence that they spoke to that they took privately I thought was really um, the kind of worst of it all because obviously they they had complaints Yes. You know, the complaints were investigated, but you know because of the mess that this all became, their original complaints have never been really satisfied in any sense for for anybody. But at the same time, you know there there's the 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 revelation that they were just dropped by the Scottish government. They had no support. You know there was there was nothing um, to help them when everything else was going on. I thought it was absolutely damning of of how they've been treated throughout this. But well, again, that comes back to the Permanent Secretary. The Permanent Secretary ultimately had the duty to make sure that did not happen because these people are civil servants and the, the Chief Executive, if you like, of the Civil Service in Scotland is a Permanent Secretary. Um, and, you know, these women were badly let down by the Permanent Secretary. So what are you going to do now? What does retirement hold? Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to do the things that I've always wanted to do but never had time to do. Uh, and, you know, I'll, I'll be doing a couple of things. Uh, I'm 
been uh, offered a couple of positions on advisory boards um, and uh, in areas of activity that interest me and where I think I can make a contribution. So I'll be doing that, but I certainly won't be doing a nine to five job because I want to be free to go to Lanzarote whenever I can get a good deal. I want to be free to take the grandkids to Orlando and I want to do more reading and more traveling within Scotland and the rest of the UK as well and just enjoy my retirement day with my wife and family. Well, fingers crossed that um, the COVID restrictions are lifted soon enough for you to be able to do all of that then, Alex. Um, and I hate to ask you this question, um, because it goes back to something you were saying earlier. I mean, you, you were a bit scathing of Douglas Ross and his uh, political tactics. I just wondered what your views were of Labour and their new leader, Anna Sarwar. Well, I, th I think Roger Leonard was a very decent man. He actually he was the Labour candidate against me in 2016 in Adrian Schultz, and he's going to be the candidate again in Adrian Schultz. I don't think he's got much chance of winning it, but Roger Leonard was a decent guy, but he didn't really understand politics, I don't think, uh, and certainly never really um, got into the swing of being the leader of a party or uh, a great parliamentarian. I think his, his skills lie in trade unionism and trade union type activity. And I think now that he's free of the leadership, uh, he'll be able to make a bigger contribution in those areas of policy if he gets re-elected to the new parliament. I think Anis Sarwar, like his father, um, is a much more articulate, experienced um, politician. Um, and uh, I, I've, got, you know, I've got a lot of respect for his father and I've got a lot of respect for Anis. I think he'll be a very astute politician. Uh, and of course, he's got Jackie Bailey, who's a very powerful performer in the chamber and in committee as his deputy. So it would be a mistake for us in the SNP to underestimate Anis Sarwar and his team, including Jackie Bailey. Uh, but at the same time, I think he's starting, obviously, he's inheriting a Labour Party that, um, you know, is almost near extinction in places. Um, so he's got a tough battle. And I think if he holds 24 seats, which that's what they've got at the moment, if he holds them, that would be a major achievement. I honestly don't see him putting on any substantial gains in terms of seats in this election. And I think Anis's big weakness and Labour's big weakness is that they haven't come to terms with the independence debate. They're deeply split on the independence question and whether they should support the principle of a referendum. And I, I don't think it's possible for him uh, to square that circle and unite the Labour Party in Scotland behind his position of opposition to a referendum totally, or the likes of Alec Rowley and people like that, who, and Neil Finlay, who are very much in favour, although they're against independence, they believe there should be a referendum if the people vote for a mandate for a second referendum. Okay, great. Any, any more questions, Connor? No, uh, just no. Uh, best of luck with uh, your retirement, Alex. And uh, Thank you you, very much. You, even in my short time covering Holyrood, you'll be a big miss uh, in the chamber, I'm sure. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much, Alex. It's been lovely Thanks talking Georgina. to you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. <laughs>